With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Series where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan. Let's say hello and a big warm welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Hey, Gene. Hello. Hello, Mr. Egan, and uh, I hope you're doing as well as I am this week because uh, things have been going pretty well and and uh, been having a lot of fun with uh, with a lot of folks out there at uh, my little playground. Yeah, the little playground, the body farm. <laughs> right? Is that what we're talking about here? The forensic anthropology research facility. Yeah, summer's coming. But uh, so you yeah, we... uh, you got go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, we we just had an international team out last week working with us, and um, I got to tell you, the science just keeps getting better and better. You know, I I thought, you know, when we were doing the stuff with uh, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology on the uh, Wildland Urban Fire Interface, I thought that was some pretty cool science, flying the super bats and all that good stuff, but I got to say, these guys are taking it up a notch, and... uh, it's way above my pay grade, but boy, I tell you what, I've got eyes and ears open, and I'm learning. Interesting. Yeah, uh, it, it amazes me, uh, you know, when, you, when you're when you working with experts and they're doing their stuff. It's pretty impressive. I, uh, I like stuff like that. So I'm sure you're learning a lot, and, um, you know, notes from the field, I'm sure there's a lot of different stuff that you're learning as far as just flying and and, and uh, doing missions out there too. Yes, yeah, no, indeed. maybe so. And, yeah, oh yeah, indeed. And it's reciprocal too. I mean, uh, they're out there in their discipline and they're really curious to see what I'm doing in mine. And when they see what I'm doing, they start thinking, wow, you know, we could use drones for this and that. And, you know, the next thing you know, I'm, headed over to the UK to train some drone pilots. <laughs> I mean, that could happen. I mean, it's not it's not chiseled in stone yet, but uh I mean, that's that's how excited they got about some of the things that we could do with a drone. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it takes uh you know, we talk about that a lot, but you know, you see the news stories, be, "Oh my god, you know, uh drones will afford you this uh, you know, let's say, a uh, cost-effective solution to gather data. No. You know, are you kidding me? I never <laughs> thought of that. And so it keeps going. And, and, and I think, you know, you see people, I, and I know, you know, they see the, the drone video on TV. I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm saturated 
uh, on that one, but uh, what you can really do and how you can use it for different scientific uh, say disciplines and applications and whatever else, uh, it, you know, I don't know. I feel it's kind of like uh, there's like a, a space-time continuum thing here where people are like, oh, God, this is great. Yes, this is true. They're not magical, and you kind of need to know what you're doing. So, that, I mean, that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the problem that I'm having right now is, you know, I, I have a 501c3, a nonprofit, so I'm, I don't always have the newest equipment out there. And uh, I, I've got to say uh, the SUS News Podcast has helped me because, you know, we had Randall Warnus on with FLIR. And mm. uh, through our discussions, they actually sent me a TZ20, the new Zoom FLIR camera, that we're going to be using in the research, which, I Excellent. mean, that was great. So, I mean, that that was just uh, directly from us having a chat with them here on the podcast. And uh, unfortunately, now I've got to upgrade my M200 version 1 to an M200 version 2. Well, it works that way. That's kind of ah, you know, yeah. how, how the deal works. And then you got to buy, you know, uh, you know, a new um, iPad or an iPhone or, you know, Keeps going and going. Something that much, like that. Uh, you know, whatever, man. You know, it just comes with the territory. I know that uh, it can get expensive. Um, kind of interesting. So, I don't know, though. It's exciting, um, you know, to use the, the different sensors and uh, softwares and, you know, uh, techniques to, to really wring the most out of this deal. That's That's where I think the excitement comes from, you know. It's like oh, any other technology, yeah. you know, if you don't know how to use it, right? Uh, no question, man. When you when you put that new sensor on there and you, you look at what you're looking at and that pops out, you're just like, it's like the eureka moment. I, just, I totally get it. And uh, it's pretty exciting to be in that situation where we can have a bunch of those eureka moments. And we've got people in the industry, you know, I, and I don't mean to be keep plugging clear, but, I mean, they've, they've sent me this new sensor, and uh, it – it helps me to keep my research going. So, uh, you know. Yeah, well, we'll have to have them back cool. on when, uh, you know, when, when you get it out there in the field and uh, ring it out and see what happens. We'll have to have them back on, and we'll talk about that. Some of the – maybe get down into the weeds, uh, as it were, on that. Sometimes, you know, we, we get technical. I know I, I do – there's no shortage of complaints, but sometimes people are like, oh, you know, you got it get too obscure. I don't even know what you were talking about. This is kind of the expert level thing here, you know. Um, uh, we're, we're not. I'd like to relate a little, little, a little story about the technical part of it. Uh, one of the people that came over was from the Netherlands, and uh, mm -hmm. I guess it was about three years ago. Uh, a Dutch uh, TV station came over to the body farm, and they did a story on us and the drones and stuff that. like that. Yeah, and so this person came back and she goes, oh, oh, you are the one that was on the, the, the TV show. He says, I've got, she says, I've got to tell you, you were quite the, the uh, social media uh, celebrity there for a while because Dutch people like the details, and you went into so much detail and technical stuff that it, it just really went over well. Well, you know, some people, I know people do enjoy it, and I, I do hear from people that are like, oh, man, that was uh, – 
learned a lot. So, uh, you know, we're, that's, I think, one of the things we try to do at SUS News is it's like, hey, this is, this is kind of the expert-level stuff over here. I joke about the selfies and stuff, but I really my thing is, is I enjoy hearing from, like, real experts, you know, people that have been in the field, the nitty-gritty and all the rest of that. So I like the details. I may not understand them all. You know, remember we had the dude on from NOAA? And he talked about uh, <laughs> yeah. how hurricanes yeah. form and the transfer and the temperature from the ocean to the sky and the energy. I mean, I was just blown away. I'm like, I, you know, hey, uh, I had no idea, man. You know, so you learn all this stuff uh, and you go on through through life, and it actually applies to other stuff. There's, I guess, only so many stories in the Naked City, but really interesting to me. That's what I like. So. When that happens, we'll have to have them come back. We got a few people we got to bring back, you know, for um, indeed, you know, the update. And hey, we were talking about doing this. We went and did this, and and let's talk about that. Uh, and I look forward to that. Uh, I'm also looking forward to bringing Gus back on the. Uh, you know, my question is when when do you think it'll? Oh, that was a good one. Yeah, you know, that one goes round and round, and I'm, I'm a little, uh, you know, it, it's kind of weird as I, I see the whole industry, uh, industry is a little bifurcated right now on, you know, deliveries here, and we're doing that, and, you know, uh, UAM is right around the corner, and 8 p.m., and, you know, and it's like, I... I I'm, I'm getting information from people all over the place, and they're like, that's not going to work. This isn't going to work. That's not going to work. They're going to have to recalc on this. You know, I think this is a not a very good story. <laughs> it, it, it's weird, but that, <laughs> through the news, it's like it's all happening. You know, it's all going on now. I personally, you know, going back to the experts in the use of end-man uh, technologies, you know, uh, the bag of potato chips, the latte, um, you know, selfies. I mean, that's to, to, that's just like a name, vacuous prattle as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, and taking up, you know, let's say good oxygen in the room for people that are actually doing stuff. And I know there's a lot of people that are out there actually doing like real stuff. And, and it, it's not that it bugs me. It's just like, yeah, God, it's a name, you know, Let, let's move on to the good stuff. I, I don't know how you see it, but that's how I see right now the snapshot in time of the drone industry. Any, any yeah, there, there's, yeah there, there's a lot going on, and, and I know that there are a lot of people that really, really want to be involved with it, and uh, they want to be as instrumental as they possibly can. But, um, yeah, sure, there, there, there are some, some misguided folks out there. <laughs> well, I, you know, we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. I don't know. I, I think, uh, you know, I've been, I, I kind of was uh, drilling down on the forecast on the Twitter. And I think a lot, you know, I mean, I understand you want to sell your forecast and, you know, but people are making investments and investing money into things on, I mean, as I put, I equate the forecast to like basically on par with reading tea leaves and and rolling the chicken bones. Yeah, Uh, there you go. Because, I mean, there is just, it's not a technology thing because I think, you know, I mean, you know, we put someone on the moon or people on the moon have brought them back 50 years ago. So I think it's totally doable. It's the, the regulatory dysfunction is just, you can't, there's no way, you know, how are you going to, how are you going to figure out that roadmap? I mean, you've seen the, uh, you've been a witness to the roadmap for the last 20 years. And and that thing has been defied all logic and reason in my estimation. (laughs) There's a whole host of reasons what, yeah, circuitous is probably a, a a very gentle word for it. I 
I've been keeping up with uh, with Johnny Ruprecht over there. He's He's been trying to explain some of this stuff, and he does a pretty good job of it. But my goodness, you know, it turns so quick you could get whiplash, you know, from one thing to the other. And the contradictions that that continue to pop up in the regulations is frustrating, to say the least. Uh, I think it's lack of accountability, personally. Uh, that's only, you know, I mean, but... That's another conversation for another time. I was thinking about that. We should start doing like whistleblower Wednesday. You know, I, I get these articles all the time from people. Can you believe this? I'm like, uh, yeah, I can, but uh, should do a story because people would be interested. Anytime I do a regulatory story, I did that one on the uh, the 91403B thing where all of these people, you know, remember the, the COAs, people were doing the copy and paste and getting sloppy and leaving people's names in there and leaving things yeah. out. Remember, yeah. You remember that? We got the same deal I did, I remember. Today. Same deal yeah, yep. today. And uh, the FAA, you know, rubber stamps it. And so nobody's reading any of this stuff. We're all experts. Uh, everybody's got it all figured out, Johnny. And they don't. They come away, and, and it's all copy and paste still for, you know, ten, fifteen, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. It's a, I, I, I think it makes the whole industry and the regulator and all the rest of it look bad. But people don't get it, you know. So what are you going to do? you got to spoon feed them. Um, but, you know, I'm not on the roster at any of the drone shows, and that's okay, too, because uh, nobody likes reality, you know. It's one of those things. But anyway, whatever the case, we'll, we'll, we'll have to pick back up on that because things are going to get interesting, I think, with the RID. That's, that's going to be a – and unfortunately, I think that's going to add years to the full NAS integration and not help when they figure out how the T's were not crossed and the I's were not dotted. You, what do you think? Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you on that count. Uh, the, there's just too many variables in there that haven't been addressed. So, exactly. yeah, it's going to hurt. Well, I think it's lack of expertise. But anyway, we'll leave that one there for now, and then we'll, we'll move on. So, you know, because I don't want to run out of time, I'm excited to talk about our guest, uh, Mr. John Pell from JP Aerospace. John, you out there? I'm still here. You're still here, I know. We got kind of long winded on all that. Oh, no worries, no worries. But uh, you know, we, we got to we're figuring out what's going on here. So um, we usually do this now. I know I know you have a long career, and what I usually do is ask the guest uh, to to give us a little bio on their career and and what you feel are the high points. Um, from that career, I know you've been at this for a long time, so maybe you could talk to us about how you got into, you know, uh, I guess some lighter than air and unmanned aircraft systems and, and what you're doing um, to help us out with that. Well, we've been running JP Aerospace here for coming on 43 years now. Um, wow. We started back in 77 where a bunch of us got together, formed the company, and bid on a NASA contract. And we made it through three down selects, you know, where they start with 10,000 people applying and then get to the final three, and we were Boeing, or excuse me, Lockheed, General Dynamics, and us. And then they discovered we were all 17 in high school and couldn't legally sign a contract. <laughs> okay. We were told by the, the NASA folks not to be, <laughs> you know, submitting bids again until we grow up. 
and then oh, we raised grown up yet? money based on that, and been <laughs> going ever since. Okay, but are you grown up now? Or are you still a kid? What's going on? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> um, we, you know, do a, we do kind of a whole mix of things here. We do airships, uh, a lot of balloon work. Uh, we build uh, manned submarines, um, and do a lot of sounding rockets and a lot of engine development. We, well, and then we do a lot of educational payloads. We're the largest educational payload provider on the planet. All right, and before you get, we've done you know, about eighteen thousand three hundred student payloads with about eighty thousand participants over the last couple of decades. That's impressive. But let's so before you get like too uh, far down the road on this, and usually I ask this question at the end of the show. Oh, you know, give us the uh, website address so people could check this out. But I think on this one, I, I want to do it uh, up front so when people are listening to this, they can look at your website and kind of understand what you're talking about. Could, could you give us the website address? Oh, yeah. You want to go to jpaerospace.com. Okay, that's simple enough. And um, from there, there's our Twitter feed, our YouTube channel, all those things you know, can be found on the bar on the top. Because we, we put out videos of everything we do, succeed or crash. <laughs> Right. Um, well, it's all learning you know, experiences, which yeah. is hard. But the reason I want to do that is because I want to talk about, you know, some of uh, the different, let's say, things that you're doing. But, okay, so you went into it a little bit about JP Aerospace, and I know you guys kind of uh, bill yourself as America's other space program. So, and you kind of, you kind of were getting into that, and I, I kind of, stepped on you there, but I wanted to, to, to get the uh, website out there so people could, could talk about that. So let's tell us about uh, JP Aerospace. Well, you know, we do all this whole mix of stuff, so it kind of looks a little chaotic. Mm-hmm. And But really, we have one major program, and all these parts all fit into that same program. And it's the thing we've been working on for over four decades now. We've have a ways to go still, and that's the completely crazy idea of airship to orbit. You know, you think of air launch, you know, like with a Pegasus vehicle that's launched off of, you know, an aircraft that takes, you know, a few hundred kilograms to orbit, or the Virgin mm-hmm. Galactic that wants to do, take tourism on suborbital flights to space where they carry them up to 50,000 feet on their 747 and then launch from there. And then you've had balloon launches, you know, raccoons that we used to do quite a few few of. The idea is that the higher you carry your rocket before you start, the smaller your rocket gets to be. So the question is, how far can you carry that model? Mm -hmm. In the late 50s with a thing called Project Shotput, they were launching balloons to Mach 10 at 300,000 feet. These weren't going to space, but these were going into the high atmosphere, and they say they're running them up to Mach 10, do a couple of laps around the Earth before they popped. What? If you could put a... In 1959, if you could put a balloon to Mach 10 at 300,000 feet, what could you do in 2021? You know, could you... Give it a aerodynamic shape instead of just a ball. Could you put a small thruster on it to drive it higher? How far can that model take you? 
And that's what we've been trying to answer. You know, I actually can't say if the airstrip to orbit program will work. You know, can we fly essentially a giant driven balloon all the way to orbit and change the nature of space travel? But I bet we can do better than the 1959 one. You know, faster than Mach 10, higher than 300,000 feet. And so that's what we've been working on. So we work on the rocket side, the engine side, um, the airship side. We have the world's highest flying airship. In 2011, we flew an airship to 95,000 feet. Flew it around, made some turns, and then successfully recovered the vehicle. Literally, that was about a month after Lockheed attempted its big high-altitude airship, and they went to 30,000 feet and had a bad day. I remember that. I, uh, oh, no. yeah. I remember they spent that. Four billion on it, and we spent thirty thousand on it, and did the flight. Well, now, you know, so uh, these crazy things you really can do. Right now, and I remember that. I, you know, I I, I do have some uh, lighter than air experience. I did work for uh, the Navy, and then I also worked for the uh, Army Space and Missile Defense Command, the Battle Lab, and some of these projects were on the, the radar and uh, other other projects were in the program or whatever. And there's been some issues with this. And then that kind of brings me to something that you already said, because some of the issues are, so you, you, you've got an airship, you're a high altitude airship, and you have, I noticed you had propulsion systems that you're working on. So these are unmanned aircraft systems. Is, or do, you, do you have an autopilot? Or are you controlling well, it from the we ground? Flew, we flew a 100-foot airship. That was the first certified airship to be unmanned to fly in the United States in regular airspace. And it took us four years <laughs> working with the FAA to get through that one. Mm-hmm. The regulatory issue was actually a greater challenge than the vehicle itself. Right. Um, it's semi-autonomous. If it loses communication with the ground it will safely return to flight based on air traffic, and you can control it with air traffic control. Um, so it has that autonomous aspect of it. But unless um, there's a loss of signal, we are controlling it from the ground. And so, so it's a little bit of both. All right. And then so then the next question is, is because, the, you know, the other thing with the, uh, uh, you know, they're, I, they're called airships for a reason. I think people, you know, a lot of the time say, oh, you know, you're full of helium, whatever, like a party balloon, you know, what could go wrong, yada, yada. But it's actually a craft that's moving through a fluid like a ship. And then this kind of ties together with, you know, you're working on some submarine stuff um, and and this uh, autopilot for the airship. Is there any correlation between the two different vehicles? Or is it just oh, absolutely. coincidental? The airship runs the submarine software. Oh, okay. And so, uh, you're, like, you're flying through the fluid, and this is what you're using uh, in the uh, for the autopilot? Or? Yeah. In fact, the submarine is kind of the testbed for a lot of it, both for, <laughs> in a software perspective, because we use a lot of deep learning and AI on the submarine. In fact, there's no controls on the submarine at all. The person sits there and talks to the vehicle. Um, we don't use the voice interface, but it's the same AI on the airship that we're running in the submarine. And the submarine also works as a development vehicle for the crew system, because you eventually want to put people on these. Right now, it's all unmanned airships. Right, right. Well, but we conduct uh, life support system tests on the submarine that will eventually go on 
you know, our larger high-altitude airships. Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, and so you're on target because, I, I, you know, that is one thing, too, with the um, autopilots, people, you know, for aircraft, we'll use them for lighter than air. It just doesn't work. Um, so, you know, how many how many cubic feet are we talking about a helium? I mean, you, you have the, the uh, it's the ascender, right, the V-shaped is that, is that the name? Yeah, of that's our big one. In fact, the the biggest one we built, we built for the Air Force Battle Lab. Oh, really? That was and a what, contract how, vehicle. We were. That's how we paid for things for a long time. We did a lot of defense work, and we built vehicles for them. And then we did a lot of sounding rockets for AFRL, the okay. Air Force Research Lab. But the airships we built for the Battle Lab. And then, and that was in the early two thousands. And, and, you, and after that, we started doing. We did a TV commercial for Toshiba. They wanted a chair to appear to be floating in space because they thought it would sell big screen TVs. Mm-hmm. So we had a big balloon, had the chair hanging under a full size chair, and booms coming out with a bunch of you know high performance cameras filming it. And the chair was the commercial was a hit. It uh, pulled a whole pile of TVs. And we discovered that, you know, defense contracts is harder on small businesses because you usually have to finance the contract because you get paid anywhere from 12 to 18 months after you've done right, that. Exactly. And so for our small businesses, it's it's a challenge. However, we discovered the TV people pay about the same, but they pay you before <laughs> you start. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I, I like that. Uh, so we started doing yeah. commercials. We do three or four commercials a year and. And we've been doing that for about 15 years <laughs> to pay the bills. And then we take the money and go fly our crazy things. So, you know, here's another one that I, this is a, this is a, like a lighter than air truism for me. And maybe it's different for you, but uh, you know, you always talk about, okay, we're going to integrate the payload and we can carry, you know, 350 pounds and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we got so many cubes of helium and blah, blah, blah. So make sure that your payload weighs no more than this. Oh yeah. Okay. Got it. No problem. And as you get, you know, comes day to launch, and uh, you know the payload's overweight by you know fifty or sixty pounds. Does that the ever happen? The payload will always be overweight. We fly that's you know because we're <laughs> flying things for all these commercial customers, <laughs> and then also we fly a lot of payload. We do space qualification flights for other folks in the industry. You can say they're going up on a sounding rocket. Well, they fly with us first to give it a shakedown on a balloon. So we've we've literally done tens of thousands of payloads. There's never been a payload, not one, in 40 years <laughs> that has come in on late. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, so it's your assumption, and you can be very hard-nosed about it or you can be loose about it. It doesn't matter. So we are exactly. running assumption. I probably shouldn't say this out loud on the air, <laughs> that payloads <laughs> will come in double. Okay, oh, well, no. Yeah, we're right and, on the uh, And that right way you have – a chance of success. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, we talked about this uh, in the beginning, you know, I think before uh, we came on and we talked about, you know, the uh, facility as opposed to like a launch site or test site or something like that. And you were saying that you guys put up a building and and maybe you could tell us a little bit about your, uh, your launch. We used to fly out of the Black Rock desert out in Northern Nevada. Right. And when we started flying out of there in the early eighties, it was the remote place. You wouldn't see people there for weeks. It's in the, it truly in the middle of nowhere, isolated area. Um, so it was great for 
you know, the airships, the rockets, everything, because your, you know, your hazard circle for the FAA was easy to meet because there's nobody there. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's, it's become more and more popular. Now the Burning Man Festival happens out there. Right. And they oh, take yeah. up three months of, and they bring 70,000 people out there. And they start a few months before, and it takes a few months to clean up afterwards. And there's spin-off festivals that go on out there. And then a lot of rocket clubs do their flights out there. And high-speed cars do their testing out there instead of Bonneville now. So it became the world's most crowded remote area. <laughs> so we moved over about 50 miles from there and bought 42 acres um, and developed our own site out there. And finally, about four years ago, we, you know, five years ago, we put a hangar up there and got some power out. And um, let's say we finally put a bathroom in. And that's kind of the, the dividing line between you when you just have a field out in the middle of nowhere where then you could say you have a facility. <laughs> right, right. Well, the other thing with the facility, and it's funny that you say that. I was thinking parallels while you're, you're saying all that is uh, white sands. You know, White Sands used to be out in the absolute, like, middle of nowhere. Not so much anymore, um, but but interesting. So, you know, that's a, a lot of the stuff I did out there, we didn't have a facility, and people would show up with their payload and be like, all right, you know, let's integrate it. Let's get it going. And you're like, well, I, really all I have to offer you is the back of the truck. So you got the tailgate, and I've got this toolbox here, this small oh, toolbox. Yeah. Clink. Here you go, you know, and uh, oh yeah, it's going to be probably about a uh, you know 110 today. Did you bring a hat, you know? So do you uh, do you find that when people show up with the uh, do they just show up with their payloads? Or are they fully integrated? Uh, what, what, how, how does that work for you? Um, everyone has to have their payload delivered to us two weeks before liftoff. <laughs> okay, that's probably pretty smart. Then hey, we're we're ready to fly. But it does happen because some of the bigger customers, you can't tell them what to do. Even Well, you can tell them what to do, but they don't do it. And we've had some <laughs> big customers that, you know, aerospace guys that know better, show up at the last minute with a box of parts. Yeah. And says, oh, yeah, it's a payload, but we just have to do this or just have to do this. And then they're burning the midnight oil, and we have the halogens on <laughs> out in the desert trying to get their thing ready to plug into the platform, you know. I've had that conversation with folks, you know, now you guys have, uh, you know, what's, what are your power needs? What, you know, what do you need as far as footprint, blah, blah, blah. And I tell you all that. Okay. So you've integrated the payload. Well, no, <laughs> what? You know? I mean, these components have to work together. Yeah, we're going to be out there scratching our heads and ready for liftoff and, uh, I don't know. Sometimes people, you know, they're like, oh, this guy is such a downer or whatever. But really, when it, we talk about this all the time. When when you get out into the field, you know, that's when the rubber meets the road. If you don't have your uh, act, even if you do have your act totally together, right, Gene? It doesn't always uh, yeah, work out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can, plan. you know, the best laid plans. That it's always a good plan until the first shot's fired. When you walk out there in the desert, you'll go, oh, yeah. I forgot. forgot. Oh, yeah. No matter how well you prepare, you're going to be out there soldering something's broken. You're going to be doing more stuff than you intended in the field or it's a bad place to do stuff. But if you do everything to minimize that before you walk out there, you have a fighting chance. 
<laughs> well, that and the checklist, you know, the checklist. They are oh, handy. Yeah. You know, it just reminds me of a funny story. So I was out at the uh, Aerospace Museum the other day, and I was talking to Tom, and they're, like, putting all the tools back and putting them away in the room. And they had this, they had this like checklist and map of where every single tool. Went. There you go, working with aviators right there. The clip, fifty pages. Oh, I, I get on my little soapbox about checklists. In fact, we're about to roll in about four days a new video out about checklists. You know, things we've learned They're about handy. checklists over the years, kind of thing. <laughs> I just They're climb handy. right up on my little soapbox and. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to be on the lookout for that one because, you know, they are important. They do work. And, you know, there's that old saying about the, the faintest ink is better than the, you know, something memory. I can't remember what it oh, is. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Bump, but <laughs> it's true. God, it is true. Um, so, yeah, you know, you get out. Let's, let's you know, we're, we're out in the, the – uh, the field there, and the uh, we got our payload. We're all hooked up. And we're ready to go. What you know? Give us an idea. Uh, I mean, the, the Ascender is like a flying V type of thing that you got. But how how many you know? How big is this thing? How many cubic feet? What what, what are we talking here? Well, the the largest one we've done is 175 feet long, and it's 40 feet in diameter, and it's a big V shape. So it's slightly bigger than a 747. Not the stretched mm. one. <laughs> and those are the ones we did for the Battle Lab. The one we did um, just two years ago was the Ascender 9, and that one was just under 100 feet long. You know, I'm bad with the numbers. I can't tell you the cubic feet unless I looked it up. <laughs> well, or you get the, diameter. Uh, the bill for the helium you could probably tell me. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> that's six grand for a liftoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, that, that was uh, funny, too. When I was working for the Navy, we were using so much helium that uh, you couldn't even buy party balloons. Cause we, were, we, were, uh, we were doing a lot of uh, training, and you would have to inflations and deflations. and uh, It gets expensive real quick. It starts to add up. Right? So oh, yeah. even in your, your, your hangar, you know, is, uh, is the, I, I'm, I'm imagining that the hangar's not large enough to put the, the, the ascender in, or is it? Oh, no, it isn't. I was going to say, that's a big You know, that's big kind hangar. of our next step is a, is a hangar big enough to inflate the vehicle in. We have some hangars down here in Sacramento that we use. We use the, a giant one over at McClellan Air Base. Is that when the B-29 available. one? Yeah, the, the one across the, the runway. Yeah, that's, now that is uh, what is it? it's like That was ours like, for about five years. That's a great hangar. And it, what is it, it's like 60 or 65 feet clear or something. The, the doors. Oh yeah, yeah. It's huge. It's uh, it's definitely something to see. Um, and we filled <laughs> the entire building up with our vehicle. <laughs> really? Yeah, that, yep. it's impressive. I've got some pictures of it somewhere, but that was that was built for B twenty nines. There's a lot of history at that uh, that that base too out there. But yeah, that's a great hangar. I'm sure it was cheap uh, to rent that. Yeah, thirty five thousand a month. Hey man, you know that's, that's <laughs> like next to nothing. Now that's uh, why the moment well, we didn't need it, we stopped renting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that's too bad. It, it's cool. It's a lot of history out there, but I would love cool. to get back in there again. But uh, so there's another well, hopefully, there and I don't have the money. 
Well, hopefully, you know, someone will be listening to this. I, I, I really think that uh, LTA, uh, people, there, there are issues with LTA and people, oh, you know, this, that, the other thing. Well, again, you know, they're like ships and you need to have experienced people uh, running the program and, you know, things things are a little bit better. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure you've been in some of the bigger hangars, like maybe the ones down there in Tustin or... Elizabeth City or something like that, the, the big ones from when we were doing the uh, observing the oh, submarines yeah. or even yeah. the ones at NASA Ames. Uh, the, the whole scale of the thing is really just uh, blows me away and it's great. I love all of that. So you're out there. Let's let's talk about a t- typical launch day. You're out there in the field. You've got oh, your so $6,000 worth of helium in the, in the bag. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, yes. the team will get out there like 4 in the morning. And start mission prep. Usually, we've, we've come in the night before, you know, with the team. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And you know, unpack the trucks, you know, get the vehicles out and in the building. And then for it's like one of our balloon launches, you know, we'll hit the ground at four in the morning, and we'll have our first team meeting. We're really big on short team meetings. You know, that we all kind of huddle. If we take more than ten minutes, and we're taking way too long. So wasting time. Wasting time. But this way keeps everybody on the same page. And with balloon operation, pacing is so important. This team has to be coordinated with that team, which is have to have their thing done at the same time this other team does. So you're always bringing, you know, stopping everything, bringing everyone together for two minutes. Where are we at? You know, where we need to speed up, where we need to slow down. And the two big halves is the balloon team is starting to fill the balloon. And, you know, we don't fill them like party balloons, you know, where someone holds on to the balloon and someone blows it up, because the balloon is much bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we don't do it like NASA does, where you just have to wait for that dead calm day, or that dead right. calm morning, because you spend too many days aborting the flight if you have to do that. So we launch in um, this launch bag. It's a... It looks like this giant 30-foot sleeping bag that we've put the balloon inside. And they've had launch bags forever. The storm chasers use them to launch little two-foot balloons up into storms. But if you read all, read all the literature, you can't build a launch bag for balloons that are more than two, three feet in diameter. It just don't work. Well, we do them for 14-foot diameter balloons. We decided to treat the launch bag as a vehicle. And look at the dynamics and the aerodynamics and the flow in, inside as a vehicle, just like the balloon is a vehicle. So depending on the wind expected days, there's little pockets that we weight the balloon to get the CG of the bag correct. Um, and then you have the, the fill team that's filling up this balloon inside this giant bag. And then you have the systems teams that are running checklist. And it's usually about two hours of checklist to get one of these uh, platform is ready to fly. So they're working through waking the systems up, testing the telemetry. Um, and then the last thing that goes on is the cameras, because we do a lot of camera work. And the cameras, you have to turn on within 10 minutes of the flight. Because we've moved away from active heaters to just insulation, because it's lighter and it's less things to break. Right. The thing is, they sit in the insulation on the ground for more than 10 10 minutes, the cameras start to overheat and shut down. Mm-hmm. So you get all the cameras powered up, and then there's the walkout. The team walks the balloon or the package out to the balloon. 
there's the further checklists and clear skies and the go. And then we do this thing called the launch dance, where two people are holding the vehicle. And it's usually a 20 to 30 pound vehicle. And then there's a runner that tears this giant tear panel off the top of the balloon bag. And it's kind of this two-step thing. where the tear panel goes off, but the balloon doesn't go yet because it's gripped on the sides by the fabric with these weighted bags. And then when the tear panel is completely off, then the sides fall and the balloon goes. The people who hold the, keep the platform underneath the balloon and it feels like it takes 20 minutes, but it's actually about three seconds. <laughs> but it's a long three seconds when you're there doing it. Uh, then the balloon is airborne, and everyone has about one minute for this big sigh of relief. You know, we hit the window because we have a pretty tight launch window we need to get up in. Um, and then mission control takes over, and they're pulling the data down and tracking the balloon live. And we'd like to have about four different independent telemetries coming down from the package because I don't like to lose packages. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Sounds like crazy and, talk. And we fly over the high Sierras, so you can really lose things out there. <laughs> yes. Um, and we'll, we'll land from 20 miles to 200 miles downrange, depending on the day. Right, and the breeze, literally, probably. We usually know... With, and we usually hit the mark within a quarter mile of the landing site. That's impressive. Uh, projected forecast. So let me ask you, though, how long does it get to take to get to altitude? Oh, about 100 minutes, 100 to 120 minutes. We like to climb right around 900 feet per minute. Interesting. And so the recovery, are you guys there for the recovery, or is it usually just kind of slowly uh, come down or, or – how does oh, recovery we, work? At the end of the, the mission, we either do it um, on a balloon flight. It's one of two ways. We either run it all the way to burst altitude. Okay. Or, and again, depending on the landing area and the needs of the mission, we'll, se- we'll send a command to release the balloon. Okay. So one of those uh, two things happens. And if we, if we have a complete runaway, if we lose communicoms with the vehicle, it will get to a safe landing zone and release the balloon itself if it's lost columns with the ground. And then it comes down by parachute. Interesting. And the ride down, weirdly, this actually has implications for the airship orbit. We actually fall over Mach 1. Hmm. And these things are just lightweight foam and it's about a five-foot-tall platform, carbon fiber poles and fabric stabilization things. Not what you'd think to be a Mach 1 vehicle. But right. at, at 100,000 feet, there's no teeth in Mach 1. Yeah, the air's pretty thin, right. yeah. Yeah. In fact, we have videos of the parachute coming out, and the parachute just kind of wafts out, dances, falls back on the platform, and then slowly emerges. And it looks like, you know, one-mile-an-hour summer breeze. But there's Mach 1 air traveling past that parachute that is just slowly wafting around it. Right, right. 
Yeah, I think that's a, you know the thing that, that for people to understand is you know that when you when you get to those altitudes, there's not lots of uh, resistance um, and things like that. But also the other thing, and you kind of touched on that a little bit with the insulation, is is the temperatures up there. Um, what are we talking about for the benefit of the audience? Oh, ninety below Fahrenheit. <laughs> so you could like store meat up there, chill beer. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no. It's um, tricky, yeah. though, because you're in near vacuum. So if you have some parts, like you, like you can have a computer board where one part freezes up, that's only a quarter inch away from another part that melts. That's interesting. Because say a part is running warm, but it can't radiate because it's in vacuum, and you didn't put a radiator on it. So it's just going to sit there and build uh. up build up heat, and your just little IC suddenly melts down, and an IC next to it that's a low-power unit that it doesn't have enough current to generate really any heat going through, freezes up. And it's in the same box and they're a quarter inch from each other. <laughs> so it's a tricky environment to work in. Yes, and I'm sure there's been, uh, you've learned a few things over the last 40 years, one or two things. Oh, we've right? made every possible mistake you can make. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of the fun of the whole deal. But, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, My it's, whole thing it's, I push on the team is that we don't want to make the same mistake. We want to learn from our mistakes so we could get to make new and interesting mistakes. Exactly. None of this old mundane stuff. We need some new yeah. stuff. But, uh, all right, well, we're down to about 30 seconds, and that happens quick. Um, I'm, I am going to um, I'm, I'm gonna be part of uh, this uh, PongSat thing for the Aerospace Museum, and I wanna, I'd like to come out for the launch. I want to see all this. It sounds very exciting oh, and interesting, and uh, I can't wait for that, so we'll be catching up. And we'll be talking about that in the future, but we are out of time. Thank you, sir, for being on. Um, Gene, thanks for, for being here. And until next time, everyone, we'll see you then. Yeah, I'll be safe. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.